ever wonder what a caterpillar thinks about? You didn't think you were going to get asked that this morning, did you? For really, let me think about what a caterpillar thinks about. Right? It's this plump, short, little, tiny insect just crawls around all its life, all its days, up and down plants, eating leaves. And then one day, something different happens. One day, it crawls up there, and it's eating this leaf, and then it just stops, and it attaches itself to this leaf, and then just begins to hang there. And over about 10 days, something begins to happen to this caterpillar, right? We all know what that is. It forms a cocoon, right? Or a chrysalis is what it's actually called. And over about 10 days, this chrysalis forms around this caterpillar, as it hangs there. And then after this chrysalis is formed, something inside that begins to happen. They call that metamorphosis. But essentially, what begins to happen over about 21 days, roughly, to this caterpillar is that it completely changes. This caterpillar, one day, was by nature one thing. And then over a course of about three weeks, what emerges is something entirely different than what went into it. So imagine what this caterpillar might think, right? So it crawls up there, attaches to this after a life of just crawling around eating. And then all of a sudden it comes out. It's entirely different. Just imagine how it might think. What it might think about. It's like, man, I just had, I used to have ten legs and I got four. What are these things? Think about it when it realizes. What are these things coming off of my back? I used to be this plump, juicy little thing. And now all of a sudden I've come out and I've, I've, I'm, I'm completely different. And it realizes it has these things on its back, and it doesn't quite know for sure what they are, right? But they're there nonetheless. And then over time, as it hangs there, those wet wings begin to dry out, and blood begins to fill them, and they expand, and they grow larger and larger. And then it begins to see and flap them and realize what these things may be about. As the wind comes across them, all of a sudden it realizes something. I think I know what to do here. And I imagine sometimes for the life of the believer, it should be very similar. Think of the astonishment this caterpillar has to be completely different and realize the beauty to which it now has and the ability that it now has to fly. And for the believer, I can see that. I mean, we should have the same astonishment when we come to salvation. When we come to that point in our lives, we realize we need something. We need a Savior, and we give our lives to Jesus. Something happens. We may not completely understand exactly what that is, exactly what that means, exactly what we do with it, but we realize something happened. Scripture would say that at that point, the old is gone and that the new has come. Paul says in Romans 6, 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, Jesus, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. And then to be raised with him to walk in newness of life. And that should astonish us. If we really think about it, something was once dead, and now it's been made alive. And in that, something begins to take place. Francis Chan says at that point, he says, I don't want to keep crawling when I now have the ability to fly. But what does this look like, right? What happens in this stage of the life of the believer? Last week, Brandon showed us that God's Word can be summarized in four major themes. That We had the uh, creation, we had the fall, we had uh, redemption and reconciliation, then we had restoration. And maybe you're here, maybe you're here today, you were here last week, maybe you watched online, 
Maybe you were in Edgewood, and maybe you followed and you were tracking with that message last week, and you came to that point and realized, you know what, I'm, I need redemption. I'm broken. I'm battered. I realize my sin. I realize my separation from God. I need to be redeemed. Maybe that was you, and if it was, praise the Lord, and please let us know. But maybe that was you, and now you're just in that small, like, what do I do now? What happens now? What happens between redemption and restoration? Well, that's what we call sanctification. And sanctification is, is a fancy word simply that means to be made holy. But remember from last week, during the fall, because of the fall, we are most certainly unholy. God is holy, we are not. Because of sin, because of death, we are now unholy. But it is God now that makes us holy. When we're looking at what we do now, how we get to that, he doesn't just leave us. This is the awe and wonder of God, is that he doesn't just bring us to redemption and reconciliation and say, okay, now figure it out from here. That's not what God does. God gives us something. He knows that we are completely broken and we are unable to make ourselves holy, so he gives us someone to effect that change, and that is his spirit. And then it is the spirit now that in the life of the believer gives us the ability to fly. Now, there are volumes that have been written on the study of the Holy Spirit and His role and how He does those things. The seminary word for that is pneumatology, and we don't have time this morning to even scratch the surface of that study, but what I would like to do is I would take, like to take some time this morning to just walk you through, just from my study of God's Word, what I have learned to be true of the Holy Spirit. And it's my hope that we see, because oftentimes I believe that the Holy Spirit is forgotten in many ways. He's less into just some supernatural being that's off in the distance, and we really don't do much with him. He's just maybe a messenger of God, but that couldn't be farther from the truth, that the Holy Spirit is a thread that runs through the entirety of Scripture. And without him, we're completely unable to do anything that would set us, actually set us apart or make us holy. But we first see him in creation. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And now throughout the Old Testament, you're not going to hear too many times where the Holy Spirit is mentioned by name, but there are several, several, several mentions, mentions of Him in imagery, usually depicting the presence of God among people. Most notably is the burning bush in Exodus 3. Right, an angel of fire comes to this bush, and the bush is burning. It's not consumed. And then Moses sees it, and he turns to it. And then God tells him to stop. He tells him to remove his shoes. For the place that you're standing is hallowed ground. Moses was in the presence of God. And then in Exodus 12 at Passover, God told Moses that my spirit will move through the land of Egypt. I will strike down the firstborn in every household. But if you would put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and over the lintel, I will pass over you. Then we see him as the Israelites are in the Exodus and they're leaving Egypt. He's, he's, his presence goes before them as the pillars of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night in Exodus 13. And then at Mount Sinai, when the Lord gives Moses the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the Lord descends upon the mountain in fire and smoke envelops the mountain. God tells Moses to instruct the people, do not come and touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, they're to be put to death because this is the presence of God on the mountain. And then in the tabernacle and in the temple, we have the Shekinah glory of God. 
It's the glory of God that glue that glue glowed glowed there we go. glowed over the mercy seat between the cherubim on top of the ark of the covenant. That is God's presence with His people on earth in the tabernacle and the temple. We also see him guiding history and producing leaders in the judges. Othniel, the first judge in Judges 3, Gideon, Judges 6. He led kings, the anointing of Saul, the first king of Israel, 1 Samuel 9 and 10. And then his rejection of Saul, his anointing of David in 1 Samuel 15 and 16. He led prophets, presented the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Micah said at one point that he was filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. And he did so with others, with Zechariah, with Nehemiah, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, all the ayahs. And it was Ezekiel in Ezekiel 10 and 11. This is a profound point in Scripture where Ezekiel stands and he looks to the temple and he describes the Shekinah, the glory of God, the Spirit of God leaving the temple. I encourage you to read those chapters. Because Ezekiel sees the Spirit, the presence of God, leaving the earth. And in some 600 years, you don't see the presence of God on earth anymore. But then as you read the New Testament, something begins to happen in the New Testament. New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, one angel announces to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, a priest chosen by lot to light incense in the temple. He appears to them and he says, your son is going to have the Holy Spirit upon him. The first proclamation in hundreds of years that the Holy Spirit is now going to be on someone, Zechariah, it's going to be your son. And then in the same chapter, a teenage girl is told by the Holy Spirit or by an angel that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and she will conceive a child. Still later in the same chapter, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, upon greeting Mary, her baby leapt in her room and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then later, when Jesus is presented at temple, Simon, a devout man, filled with the Holy Spirit, blessed him. And then some 30 or so years later, we read in John chapter 1, Verse 29, he says that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I mean, at this point, I mean, imagine Ezekiel, right? I mean, at that point, hundreds of years before, he sees the presence of God leave, and here now, John the Baptist, who had the Spirit upon him, sees the Holy Spirit descend back to earth and remain on Jesus. Imagine that picture. And then from here, throughout the Gospels, we see the work of the Spirit by the power of God through the Son of God, leading him all the way to the cross so that he might take on the wrath of God to settle the judgment of God. That is a profound thing because that is the redemptive story to that point. But if we back up just a little bit before Jesus goes to the cross, he says in John 14, he's, he's, he's in the upper room, it's, it's right before Passover, hours before the cross. 
He's talking with the disciples and he's teaching them one last time. And he's told them all these things for three years that he's going to go away and they still don't quite get it. He's encouraging them once again and he's telling them, hey, disciples, hey guys, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Okay, fantastic. Where are you going? Thomas is like, where are you going? How do we know where you're going? But then in verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now imagine again, you're the disciples. And he keeps saying he's going to go somewhere. Now he says he's going to go somewhere, but another helper is going to come. And the word in the Greek for helper there is allos, but it means another of a similar character. Jesus tells him, someone else like me is going to come He's the helper. Imagine the disciple. Who else is like you? Who else is like you? Who else are you going to send? And then in 25, these things, in verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now resist the urge to lessen this in any way. You may be hearing about, man, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've read this story. I know that. I got the Spirit. But does your life reflect that? We're going to unpack more of that here in just a minute. But don't lessen. Resist the urge to lessen what we just read. The Holy Spirit that hovered over the waters at creation, that led prophets, that led kings, that led a nation to glory throughout the world until that nation failed and he left And then he brings redemption. And then in Jesus, before he actually lays down his life, he says that it is better. Verse 16, 7, he says the same, in the same teaching, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In verse 8, I don't have it on the screen, he will convict the world, is what Jesus says. Then in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth now again imagine you're the disciples and you're just you're hearing all this and it's not for the first time imagine you're connecting dots over three years worth of teaching and all of a sudden i'm gonna guide you into all truth what is all that truth jesus you just said that you're the way the truth and the life what is it that you're actually talking about what is this truth Then after the resurrection, and it's the Spirit of God that raises him from the dead, and at the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke tells us this. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he, when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What is that promise? That promise is the coming of the Holy Spirit. I told you, I'm going to go, and when I go, it's better because the Helper's going to come. Stay in Jerusalem, because in just a few days' time. Then he says, you heard from me, John the Baptist baptized with water, But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, imagine you're the disciples. You've been told, you've been told, you've been told, and here it is, you're told one more time. Stay in Jerusalem. The promise is coming in just a few days' time. What do you think those days might have been like for them? 
Everything that had been said is coming in just a few days' time. We're going to get the help, or we're going to get the Holy Spirit, this all-true thing. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's coming. So how do they respond in that? But in verse 8, first he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But note the, per- the pattern. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power. You're going to get wings. You're going to be able to fly. You're going to be able to do things that you have never done before. Before, Jesus said, you're going to do greater things than I've done. But you're going to receive power, and then what? You are going to be my witnesses. If you lack that power, you are not a witness. Don't claim to be a witness to Jesus Christ, but not live in the power that the Holy Spirit gives you. One comes before the other. You can't be one without the other. There's power, and then you have witness. If you claim Jesus Christ, but you don't walk out and live out that power, you're not a witness, you're a detriment. And that's heavy. That's heavy, that's convicting to even my heart. Then in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house and they were where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I have told this story time and time again in many different situations, in many different teaching and it never gets old. Divided tongues of fire. That's that's the best way that people could explain what happened to Luke so that he could record this. They're praying in what looked like divided tongues of fire. A mighty rushing wind just filled it. Do you think it was just localized to that one room? No, if you continue on with Acts, that other people around, they heard what was going on. The disciples responded. They were speaking in tongues. They were uttering all sorts of things. People thought they were drunk. And then after that, Peter steps out full of the Spirit and addresses the people with the sermon at Pentecost. And at the end of it, Luke tells us this in verse 37. He says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Remember when Jesus said in 16.8 that he will come and he will convict the world. Here they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. In verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there was added that day about 3,000 souls. And this is very significant because this is the birth of the church. The birth of the church age conceived by the Spirit. We are here today because of what happened Right then. We just read it. And it seems as if maybe that's the beginning point. It's the beginning point of something, but it's the middle of the story. It's right between redemption and restoration, but restoration doesn't come without the church age to reconcile the world to a holy God. And that's conceived in the Spirit. And what follows is the Acts of the Apostles, right? Some of your Bible translations would title the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles. I like to think of it as the acts of the Holy Spirit by the apostles. But throughout the New Testament, we learn of his attributes. He empowers by giving gifts. This is a lot of scripture I'm going to give you real quick. Uh, Empowers by giving gifts. 1 Corinthians 2.11. 
He sends out workers, Acts 13, 4. He commands, Acts 8, 29. He teaches, John 14, 26, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. He testifies, John 15, 26. He comforts, John 16, 7. He enlightens, John 16, 13. He intercedes, Romans 8, 26. He guides, Romans 8, 14. He seals, Ephesians 1, 18. He brings about fruit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He unifies in Ephesians 4, 3. He calls, Revelation 22, 17. And on and on and on that list can go throughout your New Testament. The things that the Holy Spirit does and brings about in the people of God so that we can be witnesses to the world around us. So you may say, Cody, so it's, it's man, this is hard. I get it, but this is hard. I'm like, yes. Yes, it is. Imagine that caterpillar turned butterfly and the astonishment that he has, and now he feels these wings, and now I can do this, I can fly, and he begins to fly. But do you ever, have you ever really watched a butterfly fly? It, I mean, to me, it really looks like they're working hard. Right? They're not just casually going, you know, just floating on the wind, just going in a straight line. They're all over the place, but they have a particular direction. I don't think it's very different. I think it's a great analogy for the life of a believer. It's never meant to be easy. But nonetheless, if we're being led by the, by the Spirit, we may be all over the place, and it may be a, a winding road but nonetheless, there is a particular direction that we're going, but that direction is set by the Spirit if we're allowing Him to lead in our lives. But yes, it may be difficult. But then oftentimes, though, we get stuck. Who's ever been stuck? Right? It happens. Sometimes we can get stuck. We quit moving. And then when we quit moving, it seems we begin asking a bunch of questions. We kind of get where we're at and we stay where we're at. And then for some reason, we think we've got where we're at figured out for a moment. So then we start projecting to the future. And we start wondering what the future is going to be like, what we're supposed to be doing. Right? We call this pursuing God's will for our life. But very often when we get in that mode where we start pursuing God's will for our, life, for our life, start asking the Spirit, Lord, what am I supposed to do later? We get very stagnant where we're at. And we don't move anywhere today because we're trying to figure out where he wants us to be later. We want a 10-year plan for steps that we should take. But he just wants us to trust us for today. Francis Chan said this. He said, God cares more about our response to his spirits leading today in the moment than about what we intend to do next year. And I love this. In fact, he says that decisions we make next year will be profoundly affected by the degree to which we submit to the spirit right now in today's decisions. And Karl Marth says this, he says, when we are at our wit's end for an answer, then the Holy Spirit can give us an answer. But how can he give us an answer when we are still well supplied with all sorts of answers on our own? If we're not careful, we'll, we'll act as if we have today figured out, God, I've got today, but I need, I need tomorrow. I need, a new, I need to know what's happening down here. Where do you want me to be in 10 years? And God's like, I just want you to trust me today. That's where I want to land. I want to be able to trust him with my future. Because I know my future inevitably is restoration. That's where we're headed. But I want to trust him with that. Because I'm prone in my brokenness, I'm prone to do that and walk smooth off of this stage and into a hole. Or I'm prone to do that and come two steps back. I want to trust the Lord in what I'm doing. 
And now you may say, lastly, you say, if the Spirit is to guide me into all truth, when will, be, when will he begin to teach that to me? When, when am I going to begin to learn this all truth? When that, when's that going to happen? But sanctif- sanctification is a lifelong process. You're being set apart, separated to God. You're being made holy, but it's a lifelong process. Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But it's from one degree of glory to another. This indicates a sanctification process. It's progressive now, I'm not where, where you're at. Don't think I'm in a better place because I happen to be teaching on this stage. I know many of you out there are well-equipped to teach in the same way. But sometimes we compare ourselves to others and we feel, I'm not as far along spiritually as, as he is, and you really may not. But you're still being conformed to the same image from one glory, degree of glory to the other. But that's a work of the Spirit in your life. It's a work of the Spirit in my life. Because your gifts are different than my gifts. He wants to use you in a different way than he would use me. If we all had the same thing, it would just be one thing instead of many things. But it requires active participation, not passive participation. We need to be doing something. We must do something. But when we struggle to know what to do, who's ever been there? You ever struggle to know what to do? Even for today, if you're asking, right? But when we struggle to know what to do, I believe we should take an account of what we're currently doing. This is a self-check for me. If I'm feeling angry, if I'm feeling bitter, if I'm feeling jealous, if I'm feeling envy for other things, and envy for what other people have, if I start looking at how am I feeling, what am I doing right now, is that in step with the Spirit? Is that in line with the Word, with the word of God? Anger? No. Fits of rage? No. No, those are acts of the flesh. Galatians 5. Those things do not line up with the Spirit. But if you're acting in the flesh, you're not walking by the Spirit. These two are opposed to each other. So a self-check is, am I angry? Am I bitter? Am I resentful? If I'm feeling those things more often than not, then I'm acting in the flesh. I'm not walking in the Spirit. So what then do we do? If we find ourselves and we're loving, we're being joyful, we're peaceful, if we're gentle with our words, if we're kind to other people, if we maintain self-control, it doesn't mean our circumstances necessarily change, but if we're acting in the Spirit, you'll see things of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They will be apparent, but when you're acting in the flesh, they will be just as apparent. And that's anger, jealousy, resentfulness, malice, revenge, eye for an eye. All those things are of the flesh. They're opposed to the Spirit. And Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So you must walk. But imagine for a moment, say you get a, uh, say you get a Peloton or a, a wall mirror. It's still January. You got your New Year's resolution. Hopefully you're sticking to it. But say you, say you got that for Christmas. You got it set up and then in March you take it back I'm like, this thing didn't work. I, I lost a pound. This thing didn't work. So you take it back, and they say, well, I'm sorry. Was it not working properly? I was like, no, I never got on it. It's a little foolish, isn't it? Isn't that weird? Right? But that's what we do with the Spirit. 
Oftentimes, we'll come to that point where we're like, I got the Spirit, and, and things should be happening. I should be changing, but we're not doing anything. We're still just as mad. We're still just as angry. We're still just as bitter and resentful at our circumstances. But it's the same thing. For some reason, we blame the equipment. Instead of getting on it and using it and putting forth work into it, it's broken, and we try and take it back. That's the idea. And it's foolishness when we look at it in terms like that. Well, I don't... I don't, I don't know how to work it. It's, I mean, it's a mirror. Then it, It's got a picture on it. How does this work? I guarantee you it came with an instruction manual. As does the Spirit, you have the Word of God, which He wrote. Not to be sarcastic, but that's the truth. He, he gives you His Word to help you learn how that walks through. That's why we, want, we tell you to get in the Word of God. That's why we're doing foundations. That's why we want to help you learn how to study the Word of God because that's the instruction manual for how to trust God and allow His Spirit to lead us. But if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And I agree with Francis Chan that the Spirit is oftentimes a forgotten God. That we just... It's not that we just push him out. We just don't listen to him. We forget the power that we have inside of us. The power to, to save souls, to send people, to, to point people to Jesus and allow them to experience the very same saving power that we have. Not to change our circumstances, because oftentimes, man, circumstances are hard and we want it to be different. We want all this to go away. We've, we've, got to, we've got to work in it. We have to keep going at it. We have to keep flapping those wings and moving forward, but trusting day by day that he is leading it, he is guiding it. But I promise you, whenever you begin to feel that flesh, that anger, stop, grab a hold of that thought, turn it over to the Lord. Pray, don't act on it. But oftentimes in the flesh, when it happens, we get so mad and we're just, let it out. Wrath and vengeance and all that. And what does that do to our own spirit? What does that do to our body? It quenches it. Scripture would say, do not quench the spirit. It physically affects us. But the life of the believer is inextricably tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the church, the church is utterly powerless without it. But see, in order to get to God, we don't have to now. We don't have to fix ourselves as if we really could, right? We don't have to build bigger buildings. We don't have to create better programs. We don't have to come up with flashy events to puff ourselves up or make us better at something so we can get to God. And the fact is, the truth is, is that we don't get to God. He has come to us. Amen. And it's my prayer, church, that we would believe that. We would wrestle with that tension, the flesh and the spirit, how they're opposite to one another, and wrestle through that but believe that the power of the Spirit is much greater than the weakness of the flesh. But believe that and begin living accordingly and living by His Spirit. Lord, I thank You for this morning. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your Spirit. I thank You for not leaving us to our own devices. I thank You for not leading us to to salvation and redemption just to leave us from there, Lord, that you gave us your very self, you gave us your spirit to carry us the rest of the way to restoration and being restored, Lord. And 
I pray for us, Lord. I pray for us as a church, Lord, that we would, we would grab a hold of the power that we have, Lord, that you would show us and teach us and give us an understanding of what that means. And we may not ever fully understand what that means and what it is, Lord, but they would trust you day by day and allow you to shape us and to mold us and to conform us to your image day by day from one degree of glory to another, Lord. And then as we look at ourselves, we would see more of you and less of us, Lord. We would see more fruit of your spirit than weakness of our flesh. I pray that for us as a church here, Lord, that through that, Lord, that you will begin to make a greater difference in our communities around us, Lord, and you would do that through us. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.